let's hear the Lord speak to us this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to this week, for the weak. For if anyone sees you who has knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it, when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. We're in the middle of uh, this series in 1 Corinthians, which is Paul, the Apostle Paul. So if you haven't heard of him, he was an apostle. That means that he was, uh, he was uh, one of the, the, the founding members of the church that, that, that Jesus appointed to, to really to get things off the ground and get things going, and was given special authority in that. And he wrote this letter to this church in the ancient city of Corinth. And today, really, we're starting a new section of this letter. So the, the first section we looked at was uh, we, what we called the imperfect church, how that church and our church and every church has imperfections. So if you're looking for the perfect church, this isn't it. You'll be disappointed. But we do believe in the perfect Jesus, and he loves us perfectly. And the second part of the letter, um, uh, chapters 5 through 7, we looked at uh, what we called life together, which is Paul's instruction on how this faith we have in Jesus should influence and affect and instruct our relationships with one another. And this section that we're starting today, um, we're calling joyful denial. And really, as we go through the next few weeks, uh, chapters 8 to chapter 10 of this letter, there's one principle that uh, Paul introduces here. And, and, and keep, it in the, keep it kind of in the back of your mind over the next few weeks, because this is what it's really all about. And, and the principle is this. The freedom we have from being in Jesus allows us to follow his example by laying down our rights and our preferences for the sake of others. Let me say that again, because I want us to bear this in mind as we go through this next section over the next few weeks. The freedom we have from being in Jesus allows us to follow his example by laying down our rights and our preferences for the sake of others. This is the kind of overriding principle, and that's why we're calling this section Joyful Denial. It's because we, not just as followers of Jesus, but as children of God who are actually in Jesus, we can joyfully give up our rights and our preferences and put those things second for the, for the benefit and the good and the sake of other people. Both other people in the church, as we'll see today in this passage, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and also, as we'll see, see next week, that people outside the church as well. So that in all things, however we live our lives, we're, we're, we're leading people to know and trust Jesus. So let, I want to pray for us uh, before we kind of uh, go through this, this section today. 
And because we need, we need God's help, don't we? Every time we, we read the Bible, we want to ask that we're um, coming to that humbly and, and listening to God. So let me pray for us. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that you speak to us through it um, and that's completely relevant because your truth is always relevant. And Lord, I pray that this morning that we as your children would hear your voice clearly and that you would change our lives uh, to be more like Jesus. In your name, amen. Uh, t- this week, uh, I saw somebody on Twitter posted a, a, a card, like a greetings card they had got, and it said in the front of it, parenthood is the scariest hood you'll ever drive through. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's pretty true. And uh, it's certainly the hardest hood in my life. Um, Haley's actually had to go to the back because Abigail, who's normally fine, is screaming her head off, apparently. And she is now two, and there's a reason they call it terrible twos. So one of her main things at the minute is pushing the boundaries, right? So if you're a parent, you'll know all about this. Maybe you remembered it yourself as a kid, but she's constantly just trying to see what she can get away with, right? So Friday morning, I was making coffee in the kitchen, and she got this wee, uh, she got a wee toy buggy for Christmas. She puts her baby in, and she's, deci- she's discovered that she can sit in it quite well. And uh, so we're saying, don't sit in it because you'll break it. She will break it. And so she sat in it, and I said, Abigail, get out of the thing. Don't sit in it. And then I went back to making coffee. And literally 10 seconds later, she was sitting in it again and just smiling at me like, what are you going to do? And this is what she does all the time. She's just pushing the boundaries, pushing the boundaries. Let's see how much I can get away with. But in some senses, if we're honest with ourselves, we never really grow out of that, do we? This is how we kind of go through life. Especially, I think, as Christians, we're constantly pushing the boundaries to see what we can get away with, right? I'm sure you can think of things in areas of your own life. What can I, what's the line that I can go right up to but never want to cross? I don't want to make God angry, but I want to still get away with whatever it is I want to do. On one hand, you genuinely want to follow Jesus and do the right thing, and, and, uh, but on the other hand, you want to live how you want to live. Don't, I, don't, I, don't want to be told, I don't want to be told what to do or how to live. I don't want to have that responsibility. So what's the maximum that I can get away with? And it's just our human nature, when those two things come together, we're faced with this, this question of what's okay and what's not okay. We don't want to cross the line. And I think that this is especially true when it comes to things that the Bible doesn't actually prohibit us from doing or are partaking in. There's, so there's, I'm not talking about things that are clearly wrong, right? So as Christians, we're not supposed to murder people. That's just a general good rule for everyone in life, Christian or not. We're not supposed to lie or cheat or steal. Those things that are wrong that the Bible clearly uh, forbids. But what about the gray areas in life? What about the, the things that the Bible doesn't explicitly say that we should or shouldn't do? And the issue here in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians is something that, that, the, that, the, that the church have, or people in the church have written to the Apostle Paul and they've said, hey, what about this thing? Now, it's not something that's intrinsically in itself wrong. He's not, Paul's not suggesting that some Christians think that adultery is all right while others have like qualms about it. Paul's principle here applies to actions that are in themselves like morally indifferent, right? And that's what Paul is addressing in this part of the letter. Oh, something's happened here. There we go. My screen went funny. And so he's talking about discernment. Discernment is, is how do we figure out, how do we uh, weigh this up in our minds? So how do we wisely discern what is okay and what's not okay? And so the question I want to answer this morning from, from this passage, I think the question this passage does answer is, 
as we go through life in the world but not of the world, how do we discern what's okay and what's not okay for us as Christians to partake in? How do we walk that line? How do we, how do we figure this stuff out? See, we, we sometimes view Christianity as, I think we carry this over from the days before we were Christians, but we, we can easily see it as a list of rules, right? Don't do this and do that and do this and don't do that. Like it, somehow it's restricting. And we miss the point. Uh, and we see our, our Christian faith in negative terms a lot. We see only the things that we're restricted from. But the truth is, and what we're going to see today, is that following Jesus sets us free. Following Jesus comes with great freedom. And in Jesus, we are to enjoy our freedom for God's glory. And it's for our joy, and it allows us to love others. And our only restriction, if you like, comes when we lay down our rights for the sake of others. Paul is essentially saying that in Jesus, we're completely free free to enjoy all the good things of life that God has given us. And in that freedom then, we're able to not be bound by our desires and not be bound by putting ourselves first, but be free to put other people first and lay down our preferences for, for the good of our brothers and sisters. So how do we do this? How do we wisely discern what is okay for us and what's not okay for us? And, you, and everyone at every stage of life, probably every day, you have to, you're, you're faced with this question. You may not think about as, as consciously as that, but certainly unconsciously, that's there in the background. We have to make decisions about how we choose our career or how we choose our friends or, or how we you know, spend our money and all these different kinds of things. So here's, here's, what I think, here's what I think this passage is saying this morning. Wise discernment requires both knowledge and love based on the truth of who God is applied in consideration for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, so let me say that again, just so we have that in our minds. Wise discernment requ- requires both knowledge and love based on the truth of who God is applied in consideration for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's take the first part of that. that wise discernment requires uh, both knowledge and love. Well, I've actually said that, that I think the Bible said that wise discernment requires love over knowledge. It's a special kind of knowledge that's applied in love or a special way to apply our knowledge. In the first part of this, in the first part of this section, Paul says, now concerning food offered to idols, we, we, we know that all have knowledge, all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, in, in inverted commas, is quotes, he's quoting something they've said to him, he's quoting it back to them, they've said, we all possess knowledge. And Paul said, yeah, I know we all possess knowledge, but the knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know yet as he ought to know. So in other words, Paul's saying, if you think you know everything, you don't know everything. That's what Finley, Finley sent this to me all the time. And he's like, I know. You'd be like, yeah, um, he's learned about space and skills. So I'm talking about like the, the moons of Mars, because I'm a nerd. But then he's like, yeah, I know. And I'm like, no, you don't. I just told you that. This is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, they're saying, we know all this. And he's like, no, you don't. Verse three, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So what's going on here? Well, the issue that Paul addresses is specifically this food offered to idols, right? It may seem a bit not that relevant for us, but it is, and we'll see why. You see, the Corinthians, the people of that city in that time, they had become Christians, and before that they were pagans. They were, they were worshiping idols, literally worshiping little statues, and they believed that, they believed that uh, meat was inhabited by demons, okay? Um, so they would offer their meat before an idol. So 
I mean, essentially, they didn't have a lot of fridges back then, and so meat had to be consumed pretty quickly or went off. And so what they would do is they would, have, uh, they would offer up some meat to their, the, the gods of whatever temple, and then the rest of that meat would be, some of it would be eaten by the priests of that temple, and then some of it would be sold in the market. And so they were concerned, that, are we contaminating ourselves by eating this meat that has been uh, used in idol worship? And so they, what would happen was the... the um, the, the, the pagans, they would cleanse the meat of the demons so that then when they ate the meat, they would be inhabited by their God rather than by demons. And so by eating of this meat, it was an act of worshiping idols. And they had grown up doing it this way. And then some of them, even though they were Christians, they were still affected by this way of thinking, right? And there were some of the, some of the Corinthian believers, they were more knowledgeable. So they were saying, well, idols aren't real. Now that we're Christians, we know that idols are just a farce. It's not real. Just eat the meat. It's not a big deal, really. But these, Paul says, weaker Christians, and what he means by that is, is not in any way like less valuable. He's saying that they're just kind of less, they're, more, they're newer Christians, immature Christians. And they've spent their whole lives thinking another way. And they hadn't yet reached this Christian maturity. They were still carrying a lot of their old beliefs, their old baggage. And, and, and they were in their conscience, they were sensing, well, we want to do the right thing. And, and I think that if I, can't, if I eat that meat, then it's been offered an idol. And so for me to do that would be like worshiping an idol. And the other guys were saying, look, just eat it. There's no such thing as idols. You're fine. And so these less knowledgeable Christians were, were taking the advice of the more knowledgeable Christians. And that meant that they were going against their conscience, consciences and eating the meat. Now, the real problem was that the knowledgeable Christians were acting out of knowledge without love. Because what they were saying was true, right? Like, we, we knew that. We knew that, that those wooden statues are nothing. But they weren't applying that truth in love. You see, for Paul and, and for Jesus and, and in the Bible, love always trumps knowledge. Knowledge without love produces arrogance. And that's what he says when he says, knowledge puffs up. It makes us arrogant. Paul's saying, I know the idols aren't real, and, and you know the idols aren't real, but what good is knowing that if you're not loving your brothers and sisters? It's so easy to become concerned with knowing the right things that we forget to love. And we just tend to keep our faith in our heads and, and forget to let it travel down into our hearts. And I find myself being guilty of this all the time. I, I treat my faith like I, I need to know everything. Once I learn about this, then I can move on to the next thing, and then I'll have all the right answers. It's easy to think of our faith as knowing all the right answers to all the right questions. And Paul's not condemning knowledge, and neither should we. We do need to know the Bible. We do need to try our best to learn what the Bible teaches, but, but true Christian love should characterize our knowledge. The attitude with which we say what is right is as much part of the truth that we are trying to communicate. In other words, what I mean by that? If we're not speaking the truth in love, we're not speaking the truth at all. If we're not speaking the truth in love, we're not really speaking the truth at all. Because God doesn't separate the two. Knowing what is right and knowing the truth is important, but if all we have is knowledge, it's just empty words. Why? Because knowledge puffs up. But what does love do? Love builds up. And that's what we're called to do with one another, build each other up. A friend of mine um, a while ago got got himself into uh, a lot of debt. 
<laughs> you know that was God's way of telling me not to say that story. The thing went to fall, and then I spilt my water. Okay. Let me start again. A friend of mine a while ago got themselves into a lot of debt, and they, were, they just were in some really bad spending habits and not really being a good, a good steward of their money. And uh, it was so bad that it was affecting his whole life, like even his mental health was being affected and, and really down. And Now, if I had just said to him, mate, the truth is, Jesus says you have to be a good steward of your money, so just stop doing all that stuff and start doing that. That wouldn't have been the most helpful thing in the world for him to hear. It's true. Those things are true that Jesus does say that, and we are called to be good stewards. But by getting alongside him and showing him and proving to him that I love him and, and helping him and, and, and helping him to think about things, and it, it allowed him to move into a much better space. And Paul says in Ephesians 4 that, that God has given the church all kinds of different people, gifted in all kinds of different ways, so that we can be built up. And how do we do that? He says, by speaking the truth in love so that we will grow in Jesus. So when we're trying to discern what's okay and what's not okay for us, our first concern is, am I applying the truth in love? Or do I just care about what I know? I just care about having the right answers. Secondly then, why is the sermon is based on the truth of who God is? When we're trying to discern what is wise and unwise for us as followers of Jesus, we need to apply this, the truth in love. That's true. We need to have love that trumps knowledge. So, so our knowledge is, is kind of is applied through love. But this is because of who God is. Now listen to what he says. Listen to what Paul says next, because it might surprise you that he says this here. He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, this question you have, we, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God, there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now why does Paul put this bit in here? Because it just sounds like a straight-up theology lesson, doesn't it? And it is. And the reason that it's here is because, because theology shapes our lives. And what he wants us to know is that God is the source of everything. And so what we believe about God will then, of course, shape how we see the world and live in it. And Paul's trying to, he's keen to point out something specifically about idolatry and how it relates to God, okay? So Paul says, an idol doesn't really have any existence. We know that. You're right. Those wee wooden statues or those wee stone statues that people worship, there's nothing behind them. The, the, the only significance that exists there is the significance that people give them. But by worshiping those things, the people were given them significance. And as soon as we give anything significance that only God should have, that's idolatry. That's what idolatry means. And Paul reminds them, hey, these things are nothing. God is everything. And he quotes this, this uh, Old Testament prayer called the Shema, which is a Jewish prayer um, from Deuteronomy 6. And, he, and he, he makes it relevant to Jesus. And he says, there is only one God, and he is the one. There is only one true God. He's above all other gods and powers that pretend to be God. He's above everything else that people try to give significance to as God. So he says, the Father is one. He is the one with whom everything begins, right? He is the source of everything. Everything comes from him, and everything is for him. 
And then there's the, the Son, the one that, that, that everything exists through, okay? He's the Word of God by which God spoke everything into being. Everything exists from Him, and everything exists for Him. In other words, we have one God, and everything is from Him, and everything is for Him. And this truth about God is vital for our Christian freedom. Because no gods have anything to do with creation, with the world around us, except God, the one God. And you're saying, maybe, well, what has this got to do with us? Like, we don't go around worshiping idols. We're not worshiping statues. And that's true. We don't really have much of a culture of idol worship in that way, in the same way as they did in ancient, in ancient Greece. But it would be kind of foolish, wouldn't it, if we were to think that there is no idolatry in our culture at all? Wouldn't we? Because just because people aren't bound down to little wooden statues or little stone statues or whatever, it doesn't mean that idolatry isn't alive and well in our society and probably even in our own hearts. Idolatry exists when people give their primary allegiance to anything that isn't the God of the Bible. And so people worship all kinds of idols. Consumerism, work, money, looking good, fashion, relationships, sex, marriage, our kids, whatever it is. We put all these things in this primary place and and we give all our devotion to these things. And and that's idolatry. These are all the gods in our society that people happily worship. And what what Paul's doing here is showing us that that when we realize that God is the source of all that exists, then the idols in our lives become nothing so we can happily give them up as we serve Jesus. As we discern what's right and what's wrong for us. We can happily give all these things up because really they have no significance. They have no significance, only the significance we ascribe to them. We need to see those things in their rightful place. They are much lower than God. God is God. All these other things that you worship are not. And so we can give them up happily and freely. And if we decide that eating a certain type of food is not right, then that's okay. If you want to be vegetarian or vegan or whatever, or paleo or, or whatever, then, then that's okay. We can easily give that stuff up because food isn't God. God is God. And if we decide maybe that watching something on TV or, or whatever, is, the Bible doesn't say, well, you shouldn't watch this, but we decide that's maybe not right for us, well, then that's okay. We don't have to watch it because guess what? God is God. The freedom to watch TV is not. Our freedom to wisely discern what is good for us and not good for us, is based on the truth that God is the source of our existence. God is the source of our existence. And so now we're starting to build up this picture of of how to wisely make decisions about how we live. See, we need to apply the, 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 the knowledge that we have in love based on the fact that God is the source of everything and everything exists for him. But now Paul introduces another part of this equation here. And this is my third point. Wise discernment knows that what's okay for one Christian is not wise for all Christians. So what's, what's okay for some is not wise for all. Listen to verse 7. He says, However, 
Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. See, there were some Christians in the church who, who didn't have the knowledge yet that some others did. There were some Christians who, who were maybe new, they believed in Jesus, but they, they hadn't really grasped that truth of who God is, that there is one God and, and he, is, he is the one that everything is from and that everything is for. Maybe they were new believers. They hadn't matured much in their faith yet. And they believed in Jesus for sure. But this truth that the God of the Bible is the source of all existence and that Jesus is the one through whom everything was made, that maybe hadn't, they hadn't learned that yet. And we, and we see this all the time. Maybe, maybe someone's a new Christian, and, and, but they still you know, hold on to karma. Or maybe someone's a new Christian and they still, uh, uh, they still hold on to... Um, horoscopes or whatever it is. You can, you can be a Christian and still hold on to these, these old beliefs that you used to have. And in some ways, we all do that, right? In some ways, we, we all carry our own beliefs and, and, and the journey of, of becoming a Christian and, and, and uh, when Jesus comes back again is us being shaped and molded and he's making us more like him. So these Christians, they believed in Jesus for sure, but they hadn't, they hadn't realized, they hadn't grasped the truth of who God is. And remember, back in this culture, there were lots of gods that people worshipped. There were, there were gods of war, there were gods of sex, there were gods of food, there were gods of, of, of the moon and the sea and the sun and all kinds of different gods. And so when someone became a Christian, maybe they believed that Jesus died and rose again to save them, but they hadn't really grasped the implications of who God is. So sometimes the people would, they would believe in, in God of the Bible and believe in Jesus, but they would just add him to their collection of other gods. That's what was happening here. And they were, they were baby Christians, and so they still held on to this pagan fear, and they said, well, I, don't, I, I mean, I don't want to annoy these other gods, but I also want to please Jesus. And that's kind of what was going on here. And so by, by eating the food that was sacrificed to idols, they would be going back to their old ways. And that's what they're, they're fearful of. I don't want to go back to my old ways. But I do believe that those, those things have significance. For them, idols really did have existence. They really did have significance. Now, the more mature, mature Christians, the ones with the knowledge, they know that no harm could come from, from eating the food sacrificed to idols because they knew that the idols didn't really exist. They knew that, that there is only one God and because of that, they were free to eat the food. And here's the point. It, there's, some thing, there's some things that it's okay for some Christians to do but aren't wise for other Christians. So imagine a young believer. I, I don't mean young in age. I mean like a new believer. And, and before they met Jesus, they used to love just getting drunk, Okay. And then they meet Jesus and put their trust in him, and they truly are a Christian. They have saving faith in Jesus. But they haven't yet fully grasped the full implications of their faith. They don't know that God says, don't get drunk because self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, it might be okay for a mature believer who knows the truth and is living in the truth to, to go out and have a pint, but it's probably not the wisest thing for the new believer to do that yet, or, or certainly for, the, for the, the mature Christian to invite them along with you. And this highlights the, the problem of just knowledge on its own without love. Knowledge tends to generalize. Here's the truth. Smash it across everything. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't take into specific needs of individuals. 
But when we apply, the, apply knowledge and love, we can be specific. You see, applying the knowledge and love says, I knew that this might not be okay for you. I, I, want, I, want, to, I want to care for you really well. I want to be sensitive to your needs. I want to be wise. I want to lead you in love. The truth is that every person is different. Each Christian is at a different point in their journey. And our job isn't to trample all over these weaker Christians, as Paul calls them. Our job is to nurture and protect and care for and lead them in love, just as the way a family does. This is, what, this is how our family functions, that we all have roles within our family to care for and nurture and protect the younger. That's what we do in, the, in the, our church family. And so wise discernment knows that what's okay for some Christians is not okay for others. And this leads on to our, our fourth, fourth point. Wise discernment prioritizes the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters. And this is the bit that kind of pulls all together. This is really what, what Paul has been driving at here. What does it look like when we apply our knowledge and love based on the truth of who God is and realize that what's okay for some isn't okay for all? What does that, what does that really look like? Listen to what Paul says, starting in verse 8. He said, food will not commend us to God. In other words, what you eat is not going to make any difference on your standing with God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You see, they, what they had done was they had taken the freedom in Christ that, that was theirs because they believed in Jesus. They had said, oh, we know that this meat that's offered to idols that actually doesn't mean anything, we're free to eat that. And they had said, that's our right. Because of that, we deserve to be able to eat this. They had taken a freedom and made it a right. Verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? And if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, so they might see you doing this and then they'll just think, well, that's okay for me too. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. The only reason that we're able to enjoy the freedom we enjoy is because somebody else sacrificed their freedom on our behalf. Our rights and our freedoms are ours because Jesus gave up his rights and freedoms for us. That's where we start. Our liberties are ours because Jesus, our stronger brother, gave up his liberties to secure our freedom, his weaker brothers and sisters. This is the core, this is the core to the good news of, of what Jesus has done for us. He puts himself before he puts us before himself. And when we really recognize the truth of this, this gospel truth, the gospel is the good news, it has huge ramifications on how we think about our own rights and preferences. Firstly, we don't take the freedoms that Christ has offered us and turn them into rights. We don't deserve this. Everything we have is, is a good gift from God. Everything is a grace of God. And we don't, we don't deserve it, and so we shouldn't take it and become selfish. 
and say, well, I have the freedom to do this, so therefore I'm going to do it. That's, that's what Paul is saying. That's what you're doing, and it's wrong. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who ever had any right to anything, and he gave it up. And so being in him, we are to be like him. And, and the freedoms and privileges that we have as Christians are shared privileges. Paul says in, in verse, uh, verse 11, And so by your knowledge, the weak person is, is destroyed, your brother or sister for whom Christ died. You see, Christ didn't die to save the solitary individual. He died for his bride, his collective people, his church. This is, the, this is the story of the Bible from start to finish, that God has been making a people for himself. We have a personal faith in Jesus, but that's lived out communally in the community of Jesus. We are, we are part of his body. And, and it's funny, there's so much, um, there's so, there's so much in our media and our, I guess our, our cultural conversation at the minute about human rights, and, and a lot of that is really, really good. Um, and I do believe in human rights. But, but the conversation is especially a lot of the time around individual human rights. But rights are never exercised in isolation. That doesn't make sense because whatever I believe and do about myself, that's obviously going to affect the people around me. And, and, and this is especially true for us in the church. So the question isn't, the question we should ask ourselves isn't what can I or what can I not do? The question is, how can I best serve others and live my life in such a way that it makes the gospel compelling? How can I best serve the people around me? How can I best give up my rights? How can I best live in the Christian freedom that, that, that Jesus has bought for me in a way that makes the gospel compelling? Look at what Paul says in, in, 13, in verse 13. He says, Therefore, if food makes my brother or sister stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. He's not talking about vegetarianism or veganism here. He's talking about this specific food offered to idols. He loves them so much. These are his brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and, and he knew that if, he just believed that if, if, if their seeing him eating this kind of food would cause them to stumble, then he would just not do it. Because what's more important to him than his freedom to be able to eat certain things or do certain things is his love for his brothers and sisters. So he's like, you know what? I'm going vegan because I love you guys too much. Eating meat isn't that big of a deal compared to love for your brothers and sisters. So these more knowledgeable Christians are right that it's okay to eat this food, but their problem is that they're, they're not thinking of their less knowledgeable brothers and sisters. They're not considering them. In verse 11, Paul says, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. In other words, with your knowledge, you're hurting your brother for whom Christ died. So there's something, there's something fundamental there that we need to grasp, that when we look around our community, when we look around the people in this room, when we look around the people in your MC, they're your brothers and sisters that Christ died for. That's how we primarily have to see each other. Brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. Imagine how on so many levels our attitudes towards one another would change if we saw that. This is the way Paul sees his brothers and sisters. You know, a lot of people say about Paul, I love his theology and I love the way he explains everything. But for me, when I read stuff that Paul writes, I'm like, I, I want to love people the way Paul loves people. I want to love you guys the way Paul loves 
loved his brothers and sisters in the church. We are brothers and sisters, and, and, and Christ died for us. Yes, technically, the stronger, more knowledgeable brothers and, uh, and sisters are right, at least about this meat offered to idols. But their hearts are wrong. And so you need to ask yourself, and, 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 and I've been asking myself, where is my, where is my head right and my heart wrong? <coughs> Where is my head right and my heart wrong? That's a question we need to ask ourselves because when we look around, we're brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. Christ died for them just as much as he died for me. Christ died for you just as much as he died for me. And we kind of forget that, don't we? And so we get annoyed by people. We think they're being silly. Oh, you're so silly to believe that or think that or do that. That's exactly what they were doing. These stronger Christians were going, you guys are so silly. Just meet, just eat it, enjoy it. We're free. And he weren't regarding them in love. And yet Paul says that if he could hurt his brother or sister in that way, he would just never eat this stuff again because he loved them so much. That's my brother for whom Christ died. Are you serious? I'm really going to hurt them? Did you not, do you not know that Christ died for them? Why would I hurt them? I love him. Paul places this uh, this onus of responsibility on the strong Christians. The stronger ones are the ones who are called to restrict their own freedoms for the sake of others. The people who have the knowledge. In other words, it's never a sufficient question for us to ask, what am I allowed to do? What are my rights? Christians who serve the Lord Jesus, who, who, who certainly didn't stand on his rights when he went to the cross, Right? When we follow the self-denial of Jesus, we won't just ask what is right and what is wrong. We'll ask, what should I give up for the sake of others? And so if you know that so-and-so has a, has a problem with, with Christians drinking alcohol, then maybe you don't drink alcohol with them when they come around for dinner. Why? Why? Because they're your brother or sister for whom Christ died. Or, or yes, technically the Bible never mentions that you shouldn't you know, go on holiday with your boyfriend or girlfriend. But, but if that has a potential to, to cause them to stumble, and let's be honest, it definitely does have a potential to cause you to stumble, then maybe you give up that freedom. Why? Because they're not primarily your boyfriend or girlfriend. They're your brother and sister for whom Christ died. You see how this stuff starts to affect every area of our lives when we see each other as brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. And if that's not enough, Paul says in verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So if we use our knowledge without love against a fellow Christian, we're sinning against Jesus himself. A lack of care for the bride of Christ is a lack of care for Christ. Didn't, Matthew, didn't Jesus say this in Matthew 25? He says, whatever you do uh, to the least of these, whatever you do to the weaker people, you do also to me. And this applies to people inside the church as well as those outside the church. When, when we hurt each other, when we lead each other astray, when we sin against each other, when we use our knowledge to batter people down, we're actually hurting Jesus Christ. Why? Because he died for you. He died for us. He di they're your brother and sister for whom Christ died. And, and, and this is kind of, a, it's kind of a litmus test for how well we truly understand how the gospel impacts our lives. 
the implications of the gospel across all the areas of our lives, right? See, the more you understand the cross of Jesus, the more, uh, the more of your life you will keep giving up for the sake of others. This is what we see Paul doing here, isn't it? If eating this food is going to be harmful for his brothers and sisters, he just won't do it. Because he knows that in Christ he's completely free. But he takes that freedom and he uses that freedom to give up his freedom for the sake of others. And so it's not a question of what I can get away with. It's a question of how I can best use my freedom in Jesus to serve my brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. If you want to see... If you want to see how to live as a follower of Jesus, then I would recommend that you don't look to the people who have all the right answers, but don't normally serve other people. Right answers are nothing, right? Just like Paul says in verse 8, food does nothing to bring us closer to God. And all, all the right knowledge does nothing to bring us closer to God. If you want a good example to see how to follow Jesus... Look to the Christians who who continually serve others by laying down their preferences, by laying down their rights, by laying down their freedoms. Look to those people. Imitate them. And too often we we think that Christian living is is trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong and and then imposing that on, on other people. That's kind of what we do. But the core of the Christian life is love. The core of the gospel is love. Jesus says this. He says in John 13, A new command I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And then the question has to be, I'm just going to leave it there. I'm going to risk my word. If we're to love one another as Jesus has loved us, then the question has to be, how has Jesus loved us? And Romans 5 and 8 tells us the answer. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were weak, Christ died for us. While we hadn't got it all figured out, Christ died for us. While we didn't have all the right answers, Christ died for us. While we didn't understand the truth about who God really is, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is the way that we're to love one another, by continually laying aside our freedoms, by laying down our rights, by laying down our preferences, by putting other people before our knowledge and freedoms. And if we don't ever understand how Christ has loved us, we'll never be able to love others in this way. And listen to this. Uh, Paul says in another letter to, to the church in Philippi, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So, so this is the mindset that Christ has, and this is the mindset that you should have. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taken on the form of a servant. So Jesus, who is God, didn't try to defend his rights, Okay. He didn't try to hold on to his freedom. And, he, and, and by the way, Jesus would have been totally justified to say, are you serious? I'm God. I'm not dying for them. I, I, don't, have to sub, I don't have to submit to that. I don't have to stoop low. And, and he would have been perfectly justified and well within his rights to do that. But he did because he loves us. Think about this. The King of kings, the creator of all things, the one who we just saw in this passage, the one through him, everything that exists, exists. Nothing exists except, but, but except through Jesus. He's the one who made it all be. And he made himself lower than his creation. He, he, he came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. This is what the gospel is. God stooping low. God meeting us where we are 
to bring us life, to rescue us from death, Christ made himself lower than all. And he commands us to deny ourselves and follow him. And when we believe that, when we grasp that, not just with our heads, but with our hearts, then that's when we experience this true freedom. Freedom to give up our preferences. Freedom to give up our rights. Things that we, ah, that's my right. When we grasp what Jesus has done for us, then we can just freely just serve each other. And that's the path to true freedom. That's the, that's the path to true joy. And, and there's so many of you that I see that example from, and it's, it's incredible the way that you do give up your, your rights and freedoms for one another. So let's keep doing that. Let's, let's follow the example of Jesus, who's not just our example, but our Redeemer. Freedom to give up ourselves for the sake of our brothers and sisters. And just pray that that's what we can do as a church. That's what would characterize us as a family. That we are people who, 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 as Jesus says, love each other really well. And you know what happens in that? Is we, not just do we experience more of Jesus in that, but then those outside the church, Jesus says, the world will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. But that's for, that's for next week. That's for now. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to come to the, come to the table and celebrate what Jesus has done.